Please remain standing for our gospel lesson and sermon text from Matthew 21. Again, give your ear to God's gospel, beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and her colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All of this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them, And set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitudes said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise. And then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Thus far the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for your word, that it is a light unto our path, a lamp to our feet, that it reveals your son to us. And we pray that as we consider it today, as we meditate upon it, that we would see him aright and be transformed into his image. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We are one week away from Easter, from Easter Sunday, and our gospel reading today is commonly called the Triumphal Entry. It talks about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in his last week of life and ministry before his crucifixion and resurrection. And the Triumphal Entry is really about confrontation. It's about confrontation. What do I mean? Well, throughout the book of Matthew, there's There's been a running question for those who see and hear uh, Jesus' ministry, and it's this. Is Jesus the Messiah? And a related question, if he is, what does it mean for him to be the Messiah? And it's actually the question that's at the very heart of our passage here in verse 10. It says, and when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? 
Now, the theme is carried throughout the entire book, and here, near the end of the book, in Jesus' last week, it resurfaces again. Who is this? Who is this that the crowds proclaim as the Messiah? The issue had already come to a point with the disciples themselves in chapter 16, when Jesus asked them on the road, who do the people say that I am? And, you know, they answered, well, some say you're this prophet or that one. Some say Ezekiel, Jeremiah, or John the Baptist. But who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You remember that story. Right after that, Jesus tells the disciples this. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Matthew 16, 20. So there's secrecy. There's this questioning. Who, who is Jesus? Uh, what does it mean for him to be the Messiah? We know that the disciples don't understand it initially because right after this, Jesus, uh, in Matthew 16, Jesus pulls them aside and begins to teach them. He must go to Jerusalem and be crucified and rise. And Peter pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him and say, no, that's, that's never going to happen. They don't, you see, they don't understand what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah. This secrecy, this question runs throughout the book. In chapter 9, you don't have to turn there. We'll turn to another one in a minute. But in chapter 9, verses 27 through 31, Jesus heals two blind men. He's in a large crowd as they're traveling. And two blind men come out and they say, Have mercy on us, son of David. They're calling him the Messiah. Son of David, that title of the descendant of David that would come and rule the earth on behalf of God. So what does Jesus do? He waits, he ignores them until they are alone in a house by themselves. And then he heals them and he says this, see that no one knows about it. Chapter 9, verse 30. But now, now watch this. Right before our passage today, chapter 20, verses 29 to 34. Go ahead and look at those. Chapter 20, verses 29 to 34. What happens? Two blind men ask to be healed. It says, As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Son of David, the Messiah. They recognize who he is, just as they did before. But Jesus doesn't tell them to be quiet. He doesn't hush them up. He doesn't take them somewhere privately. He simply accepts what they say about him, and he heals them in front of the crowd, and then he marches into Jerusalem at the head of an adoring crowd. This is all about confrontation. The secrecy is thrown off. The questioning is done away. He accepts the title of Messiah, and he comes into Jerusalem in our passage today, and he performs three highly symbolic acts that convey what it means for him to be the Messiah. And so we need to understand them because these are the claims and the actions that got Jesus killed later that week. They're the same claims that Jesus validated by rising from the dead after his execution. And so we're going to consider each one of the symbolic actions that Jesus performs and what it says about him as the Messiah. And we will see that Jesus shows that as the Messiah, he is a paradoxical king. He is a confronting prophet and a cleansing priest. First, the paradoxical king in verses 1 through 9. 
uh, Jesus performs this first sign, which is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. It shows that he's bringing the rule of God, but not in a way that the people expected. The idea is perfect, captured perfectly in verse 5. It says, it says this, Look, your, your king, behold, your king is coming to you lowly. He's a king, but he's lowly. He's combining majesty, utter majesty, the Messiah, and meekness. It's a sign that is full of boldness and humility. Riding a donkey into the city. Now, his choice of animal probably doesn't mean much to you or me, but to Matthew's audience, the contrast would have been jarring. You see, in ancient times, when a king entered a city that he had either just conquered or that he was claiming, he came in riding on his war horse, surrounded by his troops and praising crowds in order to convey his glory, his military power, especially if he was coming into a place that questioned his rule. And you could see this as a, um, this is a, a good strategy. If you're coming into a place, you're claiming this city, and there's a question about whether or not you actually rule here. You want to show everyone your glory, your power. You want the troops to be around, right? So there's a threat. And then you want half at least of the populace to be proclaiming your goodness and how much they're going to submit to you. That way, everyone looks around and knows this is a done deal. He actually does own this place. And this is how kings, uh, whether in warfare or if they just claimed a place, they would come into cities riding their war horses, showing their glory, showing off the troops. But if a king came into a city that was loyal, or especially into his own capital, there was no need for the army. There was no need for the parade, the adoring crowd. And he would often just come in riding a donkey, a beast of burden, a normal, everyday service animal. We see Jesus is combining. He's mixing the signals. The prophet Zechariah, who Matthew quotes here, spoke of a day when Jerusalem would see their king return. In the larger context, which we read, you heard the prophecy speaks of him conquering God's enemies once for all and securing lasting salvation and a worldwide reign of peace. And then he would come into Jerusalem riding a donkey. That's what inspired the crowds as they saw this sign, Jesus riding in Jerusalem, leading them to shout, Hosanna! To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The claims, the acclaim couldn't get any higher. This is the son of David. This is the king prophesied in 2 Samuel 7 who would be God's own king, who would, whose kingdom would never end. He would rule on behalf of God over all of the earth. It's the king from Zechariah 9 who would bring salvation to God's people in final and lasting peace. It's a, it's a show of incredible glory. And yet, what meekness. He's riding on a donkey. Yes, the crowds are exalting him, but it's an army of peasants surrounding a king who's homeless, who looks no different than they do, armed with nothing but palm branches. And he's riding into an obviously hostile city. It's a city that's controlled by Rome and the Sanhedrin. He's got the crowds. He's got the acclaim, but he's on a donkey, and there's no army in sight. So you can imagine riding into a city that doesn't recognize your rule the way that Jesus is 
is a provocation. It's a recipe for getting yourself killed, which is exactly the point. Jesus' reign, his kingdom, is not like any other kingdom. His kingdom is just like its paradoxical king, as he just finished explaining to the disciples, saying this, Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your servant. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 27 and 28. Jesus is not like other kings. He's not riding into Jerusalem to establish his kingdom by killing and subjugating others. He's riding into Jerusalem to establish his kingdom by serving and dying for others. In little less than a week's time, Jesus would allow himself to be killed on a cross, bearing the penalty for your sins and mine, so that God could make him who knew no sin to be sin for you, so that you might become the righteousness of God in him so that he could conquer and defeat his enemies through sacrificial suffering and rising from the dead. When the Apostle John saw a vision of Jesus in heaven in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, it says this, One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the conquering king. And how does he conquer? By being the lamb led to the slaughter for your sins and for mine. Humility and boldness conquering through sacrifice. This is what is so I mean, just absolutely magnificent and captivating about Jesus when you read the Gospels is that he perfectly combines virtues that seem like complete opposites to fragmented and sinful people like us. Theologian Michael Reeves captures this uh, description perfectly when he says this about Jesus, quote, Christ was a man of extraordinary and extraordinarily appealing contrasts. You simply couldn't make him up for you'd make him one, only one, or the other. He was red-blooded and human, but not rough. Pure, but never dull. Serious, with sunbeams of wit. Sharper than cut glass, he out-argued all comers, but never for the sake of the win. He knew no failings in himself, yet was transparently humble. He made the grandest of claims for himself, yet without a whiff of pomposity. He ransacked the temple, spoke of hellfire, called Herod a fox, and the Pharisees pimped up corpses, and yet... Never do you doubt his love as you read his life, end quote. And the amazing thing about Jesus is he does not alternate between these things. He's not bold with some and humble with the others. He doesn't serve other people, serve some people and confront others. He's always boldly humble or authoritatively serving and so on and so forth. Jesus is a walking, or in this case, riding, paradox. And you know that you are grasping the gospel of the kingdom as you yourself become like its paradoxical king. What do I mean by that? Well, let's take an everyday situation. Let's take a situation where you need to confront someone about sin. Maybe in your, in your home, you need to correct one of your children or confront a brother. Or in the church. You see someone sinning, and you, and you can't ignore it. You need to talk to someone about it. Now, how do we usually deal with that? Well, some of us are quite bold. 
we have a lot of bravado, we're harsh, we just come down on people. We think to ourselves, well, I'm not sinning in that way, or I don't sin in that way that bad, so shape up, knock it off, get it right. You just come right down on them. Some of us easily move there. Others of us find it very easy to give what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace, grace that costs you and God nothing to give. When the, when the thoughts run through your mind, when you see a sin that you ought not ignore, in your house or in the church, and you begin to say to yourself, well, I mean, after all, we are, we are all sinners. Who am I to say anything to someone about that? That's cheap grace. And what's the issue? What's going on there is, well, in neither of those cases are you loving and caring about the person. And in neither of those cases do you have a right estimation of your own sin and sinfulness. And we tend to just shift from one to the other depending on the context, whether the sin, how much does the sin inconvenience us? How much does it get under our skin? How connected is this person? How poorly does it reflect on me? Right? We alternate between being overly harsh or being overly permissive. But that's not what God calls us to do. But it's only when you grasp the gospel of the kingdom and it gets down into your bones that you will have the same paradoxical mixture of true humility and unshakable boldness as the king himself, as the lowly king. True humility because the cross shows you that your sins are so bad and so deep that only the bloody death of God's own son on a cross could atone for them. But the cross also gives you unshakable boldness because it proves that God loves you more than you could have ever imagined and that every single one of your sins are paid for in full. God loves and accepts you as you are right now, the sinful you in Christ because of what Christ has done for you. When you get this, when this settles into your heart and life, this will lead you to do what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians. He says this, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You restore them. You talk to them. You confront them. You help them in such a way that it actually brings them out of the sin that they're committing. And yet, what does it say? With gentleness, with humility. When you're filled with the love of God for you in Christ, you will be absolutely bold in confronting others with sin. Why? Because you're so satisfied with Christ, you can risk that relationship. And you're so filled with love that you're actually motivated to do them good. You're motivated to see them come out of the sin that Christ paid for. But when you do confront, when you do help, when you do exhort, there won't be a whiff of pride about it. Because the way that you've been filled with that love is by meditating on how much your deep sins have been forgiven. This works whenever we confront people. It works in all areas of life. How do you suffer redemptively? By knowing that Christ's own suffering was for us, to redeem us from our sins and to bring us to everlasting life. As you, as you grasp that, even your sufferings become, um, as Paul says, uh, that we become more than conquerors through them. It applies to every area of life. So as you grasp the gospel, you will grow in grace, and you will grow in that paradoxical way that the king does as well. 
So riding into Jerusalem was the first sign. It showed that Jesus brought the rule of God, but not in the way that people imagined. And it confronts us with a choice. Will we bow the knee and allow the paradoxical kingdom to be manifest in us and through us? It's the first sign. Second sign, second claim. Jesus is the confronting prophet. In verse 11, uh, in verse 11, they simply identify Jesus as the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And while Jesus' identity has been something of a, an enigma, a question throughout the book, um, the one thing that almost everyone could agree on was that Jesus was a prophet. Some of them, because of the great authority with which he spoke or the miracles that he performed, uh, concluded that he was the prophet, the one foretold in Deuteronomy 18 by Moses, the prophet who would be like Moses, but far greater, who would be God's final prophet. And the second sign that Jesus performs, going into the temple and turning over the tables and driving out the money changers, is a prophetic sign act, much like the way that Jeremiah or Ezekiel, you might think of Hosea, their ministries were characterized by these actions that symbolized and showed the message that they were proclaiming. Jesus is doing the same thing by turning over the tables. In fact, in verse 13, Jesus' speech, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves, is simply a combination of quotes from Isaiah and Jeremiah. Now, all prophets, when they had God's message, were authorized to speak on behalf of God, but Jesus and his actions, his sign act, and his speech is actually doing and saying something far more. Jesus goes into the temple, which is God's house. He rearranges the furniture, and he does not begin his speech with the normal prophetic formula, thus says the Lord. He simply begins with this, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. The prophets spoke for God, but here Jesus is speaking as God. As it says in the book of Hebrews chapter 1, Long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Hebrews 1.1. So what did his sign act mean? What, did he, what was he trying to symbolize by turning these tables over and driving people out of the temple? What was he confronting the people about? Well, he was confronting them about the same thing that all the prophets confronted Israel about, idolatry. Some commentators think that Jesus was angry because the sellers and the money changers were profiting. They were making money. And there's something plausible to that because he calls them thieves. Perhaps what he's angry about is that they're shortchanging people. But you have to remember, God made provision in the law for the temple and the temple workers to be paid. Right? And he, he did require certain specific animals for sacrifice. And so there shouldn't be any problem about some people raising and selling and providing these animals for worship. No, the problem was that they had set up their business in the temple itself, in the court of the Gentiles. In other words, they were taking what should have been used for prayer and worship, and they were instead using it to make money. It was a den of thieves, not because they were stealing money from people, although they might have been doing that, but because they were stealing glory from God. In other words, they found God useful in their devotion toward money rather than finding their business as a useful means in their devotion 
to God. The fact that they had crowded out the worship of God with their business showed that. And idolatry is the fundamental sin because it inverts the order of the cosmos. It is worship and serving the creature rather than the creator. Idolatry is unwrapping the candy and eating the wrapper instead. It gets things completely backwards. And money and possessions have always been a great temptation for falling people. Even the Apostle Paul would warn Timothy later about those who imagine that godliness is a means of financial gain in 1 Timothy 6. He says this, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, and many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into all kinds of ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10. What I want you to see is that in that passage that I just read, that what is desired and loved is money, and what is useful or a means is godliness. And that's exactly backwards. Those who desire to be rich for the love of money and those who think that godliness is a means of gain. What Paul is writing about is idolatry. It's writing to people who have uh, the created things, the good created things that God has given us, and God himself inverted. Their loves are out of order. We're all prone to this in one way or another, to one degree or another. And it may be money and possessions for you. It has been for a lot of people throughout history. But there are plenty of people who are happy to serve and worship God if it leads to the spouse and the family life that I have always wanted, or to a certain ease of life, or to occupational success, or a certain friend group. But Christ's second sign here confronts us because he comes to each heart and each life, just as he did to the temple in Jerusalem, to drive out and overturn all idols so that the worship of God again occupies that central place. Friends, if you belong to Christ, he is in the business of reordering all of your loves and all of your life back around the worship of the true and living God. God is majestic and gracious and wonderful and kind beyond measure, and only he is worthy of being loved in and of himself. So ask yourself, where has God become useful to you rather than lovely. And then come and ask Christ to overturn all of your idols, to drive them out, and to show you how worthy God is of praise and honor through him. It's the second sign. Third sign, finally. Jesus shows that as the Messiah, he is our cleansing priest. Now, of, of the three actions that Jesus does in Jerusalem, this was probably the most shocking to, uh, to his original audience. See, by driving out the money changers and turning over the tables, Jesus, in effect, had ended the animal sacrifices, at least for that day or at least for the time that he was in there. No one was using those animals to make a sacrifice while Jesus was there. And what he did instead was plant himself in the temple and call for people 
to come to him. In verse 14, it says this, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Through his prophetic speech, Jesus claimed to speak as God, but in by placing himself in the temple, he claims to be the very presence of God, the way to God. Now, this is amazing. In Leviticus 21, 21 through 23, specified that the blind and the lame and those with other physical defects were, could not serve in the temple. You could not be a priest and serve in the temple if you were blind or lame. But by Jesus' time, a tradition had developed that they were not even allowed in the temple. So that's why in the book of Acts, as you see Peter and John uh, coming into the temple and they heal the lame man, they do it outside the gates right before they come in. Because at this point in history, they would not allow the blind and lame in. And where had Jesus just driven all the money changers out of? The court of the Gentiles. And so Jesus is calling for these people, the Gentiles, the blind, the lame. He's calling all of those who were forbidden from entering the temple to come to him and be healed. And by doing this, Jesus is saying two things. One, he's saying that Jesus welcomes the outcasts. Those who are morally and here physically unclean, those who are unworthy to come into God's presence are welcomed by Jesus. And that means that if your sin has made you gross and unworthy to come to God, if you are morally mangled, if you're blind, if you do not know who God really is, if you were not born in the right kind of home, then Jesus' sign here speaks to you of his power and intention to clean and perfect all that come to God through him. Come to me, Jesus says, and I will cleanse you from all of your defilement. I will heal you and make you one of God's people fit for service in his kingdom. Come to me. Believe in me. The people at Christ's time had forgotten that we are all lame. We are all blind. We are all unclean. We are all welcomed, provided that we come to God for cleansing through his appointed substitute. Which is the second thing that this sign says. In effect, Jesus is saying that what the priests in the old covenant and the blood of animals couldn't accomplish, the forgiving, the cleansing, and yes, even the healing of our moral and spiritual deformities, Jesus can do. As it says in the book of Hebrews, every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. Friends, this is the gospel. All the people around us in our surrounding community, everyone here in this room outside of Christ, we are all the blind. We are all the lame. We are all the outcasts. We are all the Gentiles. We are all unclean. But all can come to God through Jesus Christ and find healing and forgiveness and restoration and a, a place of service in his kingdom. Jesus shows his intention not only to justify, but entirely transform the ungodly into sinless, godly people and take away every disease, every disability, every deformity. He accomplishes that in you right now by degrees through his sanctifying spirit, and he will complete it 
fully one day when he returns. Jesus is willing and able to save to the uttermost any who draw near to God through him. But this also means that you must draw near to God through him, through him alone. You cannot rely on your good works, family upbringing, church attendance, as wonderful as, and God-ordained as all of those things are. You cannot rely on that to commend you to God any more than the Jews of Jesus' day could rely on those animal sacrifices which were merely pointers to the true cleansing offered by the true high priest, which Jesus shows by putting himself right in the temple, right in the presence of God, and calling all to come to him. So Jesus' signs leave us with a choice. Jesus claimed to be God's own king, bringing in the rule of God in a way that no one expected. He claimed to be God's final prophet, speaking the very words of God himself. He claimed to be the true high priest, the only way to God. And then he claimed to be God in the flesh. Continues, says this, But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise. What's so astonishing about that is that the psalm Jesus quotes refers to God. Psalm 8, let me read it for you. Psalm 8, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You who have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise because of your enemies. Psalm 8, 1 and 2. Jesus receives the praise of little children and then explains it by quoting a psalm where the children are praising God. This is what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. He's God come in the flesh. He's the ruler of the world. He's the very word of God. He's your only hope for forgiveness or salvation and salvation or he's nothing. Jesus will not be put up right alongside any other teacher or philosophy or your own best efforts. You must either despise and hate and reject him, as the Pharisees did, or you must either fall down and worship and love and adore him, as the children did. But his confrontation leaves no middle ground. So if you have not given yourself over to him, that is his call to you today. Total surrender, accompanied by complete and free forgiveness and healing. If you do belong to him, if you have already placed your faith in Jesus, as you grasp this gospel in deeper ways, his paradoxical rule will work its way out in your heart and in your life. This is what it means for Jesus to rule as the king in the midst of his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is your king, that he is our king, that he has come, sacrificed himself, that he is alive from the dead, that he will return and restore all things. We thank you that he gives us your true word. He speaks grace and truth to us. We thank you that he is our cleansing priest and sacrifice, and that we are fully free and freely forgiven of all of our sins in him. And we pray, Lord, that you would drive these truths deep into our hearts, that we might rejoice 
in your son, Jesus Christ, and that we might live in the way that he did. In Jesus' name, amen.